Okay, so we're just going to look at gym myths and hopefully try and clear up a lot of them for you and hopefully can improve your understanding if you're confused about any of them. So this is just a collection of things and topics that you might have heard or believed in the past or confused you in the past. Um, things that kind of leave you questioning who and what to believe or listen to. So I'm kind of here to clear them up the best I can <clears throat> and hopefully kind of improve your understanding on everything. So we'll just kind of get cracked straight in and just go through a few myths and um, I'll explain why they're myths, how they came about and what the real kind of um, answer behind it is. So the first one you'll definitely have heard of um, is eat more and lose weight and that's an absolute crock of shit like it's so bad like so and pts are they're kind of saying it and i i know what like they're just not explaining it well enough though because um and i know where they're coming from but so think about this let's go back to the credit card analogy um obviously the money that you spend is, is what you eat and the money that you pay back is the calories you burn you don't spend more on your credit card and then be in a better financial situation, you'd be in more debt without paying back more, do you know what I mean? So that's, obviously, you know straight away, you're like, okay, that makes sense, that doesn't work. So what happens is, if they get their client, a PT gets their client to eat more, what will generally happen is one of two things. The first thing that will happen is they'll move more because they've got more energy. So if they're on really low calories, they might be really lethargic and they might not move a lot. So as soon as they up their calories a little bit, say they give them an extra 200 calories a day, they're gonna have that much more energy, which means they're gonna move more. Luckily for you, you've got your step goal, you're gonna move a lot regardless of what your calories are. Your, your activity's always gonna be the same, so you don't have to worry about that. The second thing is, <clears throat> their clients or the, the person in general <clears throat> might be eating like a thousand calories, something extreme a day, okay? And um, really little calories Monday to Friday, and eating 4,000 calories Saturday and Sunday and binging, okay? So that obviously makes their 8,000 plus 5,000, that makes 13,000 calories a week, all right? Which is obviously, um, completely different. Well, but what happens is if they have an extra 500 calories a day, so instead of a thousand Monday to Friday, they have 1500 and they do that for seven days um, as opposed to obviously binging at the weekend, that'll put them to 11,500 calories, obviously which is a good bit less than they were when they were accumulated over the week than they were when they're only having a thousand calories a day because at the weekend they're having that big massive binge and that was obviously bumping their calories right up. And they're thinking, I'm literally like obviously eating so good and not losing weight, but then when I start eating more, I start to lose weight. It's like no, accumulated over the week, you were you were actually eating less, even though you're eating more every day as such, apart from the weekend. So that's the second one to that. So no, you do not eat more and lose weight. That's impossible. It goes against the whole kind of science as such. And um, there's a reason that you're going to be losing weight because one, you're expending more calories or two, you'll obviously accumulate across the week, you're actually eating less <clears throat> as a result. So, the second one is the fat burning zone. So, think about all your gym equipment, um, and the gyms would be like, oh, you are in the fat burning zone, you are burning fat or whatever. I actually um, have a, a Garmin, so they're a really expensive watch, like 280 quid, and then, um, like when I was running, I had my headphones in, it was like, you are burning fat, and I honestly wanted to just take it off and stand on it, but, the thing is, there is such a thing as a fat burning zone. If you're like an endurance athlete, like a triathlete or a long distance runner or whatever, you need to become efficient at um, oxidizing fat as fuel because that's your primary fuel source, all right? At lower intensities, your primary fuel source is fat. So they need to become efficient at obviously using and utilizing that as fuel to kind of improve their performance. But in terms of fat loss, 
it doesn't it, does, it doesn't work like that. And I'll explain that right now. So with a fat burning zone, there is a fat burning zone. It's generally ha- well, not generally. It um, happens at lower heart rates. So maybe. I don't know, maybe about 145 beats per minute and below you'll be burning fat as fuel because it's like the um, the primary fuel source at that heart rate. As you go into higher heart rates, like maybe like if you think short, sharp intervals, like sprints, like interval training, weight training, obviously your heart rate goes a lot higher than that and you need kind of energy immediately. So your body's really requiring energy. And then your primary fuel source switches to carbohydrates. And the reason for this is, is because they're... Um, it requires less oxygen for your body to break down and absorb carbohydrates and turn them into fuel than it does basically fat. So obviously it prefers that basically for fuel at higher heart rates. But so what happens here is people for many years and still to this day think if we work in the fat burning zone, we're going to burn specifically fat. Whereas if we did high intensity stuff, it's just going to be carbohydrates we're burning. And obviously people are wanting to burn fat. They'll be like, oh, we're using that. So that's the best thing to do. But let me give you this little analogy. I love an analogy these days. So um, let's picture, you know the story already. You've got a bank account and you've got £2,000 in your bank account. Within that bank account, you've got two little pots. Obviously, you've got your current account. So that's your ready to use money to spend. And you've got your savings account, which is your, your stored money. Okay, So your savings account is going to be your stored fats, so your, your stored money. And then your current account is going to be your ready to use money, which is obviously your carbohydrates ready to use energy. So you've got 2,000 obviously accumulated across the two £1,000 bank accounts. Um, if I buy a £400 watch, no matter what account I take it from, I'm going to be left with £1,600, right? It doesn't matter what happened, what account. Let's say I take it from my current account, so my carbohydrates. Um, when that current account starts to deplete, get less and less, what are you going to do if it was your bank account? You're going to transfer money from your savings, your stored fats, um, into your current account to obviously balance that out. And then if you took that £400 from your, your savings account, so your stored fats, what are you going to do? Obviously, your savings account is, start, is starting to get low, so you're going to take money from your current account and put it into your savings to obviously build that up. And that's exactly what happens to your body. So it works the exact same way. It, it's really clever. It works in like a cycle. So if your your kind of body fat percentage, or sorry, your body fat, um, the fact that you're using this fuel starts to get low as such, which it won't, but... Um, it will obviously take money from your current account as such, um, your carbohydrates, because your carbohydrates levels are obviously higher and there's an optimal level. And if it gets past the optimal level, it converts it into fat anyway. So it's just a cycle. And then obviously if your current account, i.e. your carbohydrate levels get too low, there's an optimal level and it gets too low, then it starts to use fat as fuel. So it's just a constant cycle. So it doesn't matter where you burn your calories from in what zone, as long as you're burning a total amount of calories, so 500 calories burned in the fat burning zone is the exact same as 500 calories burnt in the car, like obviously the higher intensity zone as such, give or take 10% because there's something called elevated post-exercise oxygen consumption while higher intensity training, but I'm not even going to dare get near that for this kind of episode because it will be too long. So the next one is a really interesting one, and um, it's carbohydrates are bad for you. Carbohydrates make you fat, whatever, whatever. And I'll tell you exactly where that's came from. Um, <clears throat> so years ago, and even to this day, people still preach about the ketogenic diet. So you've probably heard keto. And basically what that is, is basically removing carbohydrates from your diet completely. Um, or mostly, I think it's more, uh, completely though. So that basically means the only food sources you have are protein or fats. And um, well, basically what happens here is think about this. 
<coughs> generally per day, the kind of average person, whatever how many calories they have, generally 50% of that comes from carbohydrates, 25% from fats, and 25% from proteins. Um, so think about it, 50% from carbohydrates. What happens if we remove 50% of the calories that you're eating? You go into a calorie deficit. So people obviously start doing this ketogenic diet and remove carbohydrates and start losing all this weight and they're like, oh my God, carbs are bad. Like I've lost all this weight on this ketogenic diet. It's like, oh my God. Obviously, because you've just removed half of your calories that you consume in a day, you're obviously going to lose weight. It's common sense. So all they've done is created a calorie deficit. And I want to say here, every single diet that you've ever heard of, whatever it is, the only reason that it would work would be because it would create a calorie deficit. So there's nothing, there's no special diet. It's just all a load of money-making bullshit. And basically what it's doing is making a calorie deficit. Um, so on top of that as well, what happens with carbohydrates? A little bit of science for you. For every one gram of carbohydrates that you consume, your body will retain two to three grams of water for every gram of carbohydrates you consume. So guess what happens when you stop consuming carbohydrates? You lose a lot of water retention, which means you lose a lot of weight at the start. And then obviously that weight has got nothing to do with fat, so you don't look any better, you're just lighter on the scales. So that's what's happening there. That's why people think carbs are bad. And think about it, you never go out for a meal and you're like, oh, let's overeat on protein and fats. You're like, let's overeat on carbs, like cookies or whatever. Not that you go out for a meal and have cookies, but you get in my gist. And like, so why would you want to remove essentially the, the best food uh, food source in terms of taste, etc.? You just wouldn't. And especially in terms of performance, carbohydrates are your primary fuel source, um, especially at higher intensities. So for a performance point of view, you're going to be in, in a good bit of trouble. So carbs are not bad. The ketogenic diet, don't even bother doing it. There's not much point. You're just creating a bad relationship with food, if you like. Unless you have epilepsy, then it's it's shown to obviously have benefits there and for sure you can crack on but there's just no reason and obviously people just think carbohydrates are bad because they've done the ketogenic diet and what they did was basically half their calories and funnily enough lost weight which funnily enough was a calorie deficit it wasn't because carbs were bad so crack on with your carbs just stay within your calorie goal and you'll be golden Whew, that was a good one so the next one is high repetitions of obviously um, resistance strain to get toned so obviously do high reps and you'll get toned. Right, so first off, you cannot tone a muscle. I use the analogy toned because you have a picture in your mind when I say someone's toned. You understand what I mean by that? And um, Obviously someone that looks defined as such. But you cannot actually tone a muscle, you can only build a muscle and then lose the body fat around it. So, there we go, I'll repeat that. You cannot tone a muscle, you can only build the muscle and then lose the body fat around it and that gives that kind of toned, lean, shredded, whatever you want to call it, look, all right? So, to get toned, you're obviously going to either build a muscle by progressive overload, or if you have that kind of muscle mass there already, you're going to obviously eat in a deficit, i.e. pay off that credit card more than you're paying on, uh, spending on it, and that's going to give you that toned look. So there we have it. Obviously, your rep range will matter in terms of your if it's a performance goal, i.e. if you're looking for maximal strength, or you're looking more towards power, whatever, then it'll matter, but in terms of the general population, you don't have to worry, pick a rep range and crack on with it. So say if it's eight to 10 reps, use that for six weeks and overload on that six to, uh, eight to 10 reps, sorry, if it's just deadlifts, and obviously do eight to 10 reps every single time you do deadlifts and just try and up the load. And that's your progressive overload. There's a study by Brad Schoenfeld, I think it was, a really clever scientist. Um, it was like people use 40% 
a group used 40%, a group used 60%, and a group used 80% of the one rep max. So if your one rep max was 100 kilos, um, a group used 40 kilos, another group used 60 kilos, another group used 80 kilos um, over like a six week intervention, and they all trained to muscular fail failure, and there was no significant difference in muscle kind of advances between the three groups because they're trained to failure, which basically means mechanical tension and metabolic fatigue were the driving factors and not the reps used. So if it's not a kind of performance goal, just pick a rep range, stick within it, and just try and progressively overload by obviously increasing your, your weight, um, your time under tension, etc., etc. adding more sets in, whatever it may be, and just leave the reps. And then once you've done that six weeks or whatever and you've had made good progress, change the reps, maybe go down the reps, and then maybe do five to seven reps or whatever, and go from there. So the next one is stretching. How far are we into this podcast? 13 minutes. I'll keep cracking on. Stretching before exercise prevents injury. Honestly, it's such a well-known myth, if you like, but there's literally little to zero studies that actually um, are valid or have are reliable studies that actually prove that stretching prevents injury. And by stretching, I mean like holding a position. So if you imagine keeping your legs straight, putting your toe towards the ceiling and holding that position, like when you're in the gym or doing performance or stuff, you're never in that position anyway. But this actually has really negative effects on performance and there's not actually any studies that strongly suggest that um, they actually um, prevent injury or reduce injury and that's going to shock a lot of people listening to this they're going to be like bullshit but trust me don't go into google go into google scholar scientific um, credited articles read a few articles and then you'll you'll believe me then anyway what happens when you static stretch before exercise as well, so you're holding that position, is you get something called a stretching-induced force deficit. So basically what that means is stretching induces a reduction in the force that you can put out during, obviously, your gym session or your performance. And if, by up to 28%, that is. So if you think to build muscle, you need mechanical tension, which the more force you can put out, the more tension you can create. If you can't put out as much force, you can't create as much tension. If you think of a performance like a sprint, if you can't put out as much force, you can't run as fast. And this is what static session does, and there's two hypotheses behind why this happens. The first one is a neural hypothesis. Hypothesis? Is that the way you say it? Yeah, we'll roll with it anyway. Um, so what happens is basically um, on a neural level, if you think of two elastic bands, right? If you have a really stretchy elastic band and you ping it, it doesn't go that far. But if you have a really tight elastic band, okay, and you ping it, because there's so much tension building up and you let go, it pings miles and really quick, so there's a lot more force going out through that elastic band. And that's the exact same thing that happens with your muscles. When you stretch it, they become a little looser, um, lose the kind of elasticity, if you like, and then obviously they don't ping as far, i.e. they don't get the same force output. And that obviously negatively affects your gym performance. Now, that only lasts about half an hour, by the way, after stretching, and it goes back to normal, but that's that first half an hour of your gym session. You're slightly, obviously, reduced in terms of the force that you can put out. Um, and what happens here is the reflex sensitivity is kind of reduced. So I won't go too far into the science, the science of it, but maybe that's a, a podcast for another day. But basically what I'm saying is... Um, yeah, stretching before exercise, it's just pointless. You're better doing mobility, so actively going through a range of motion, etc. Um, and the other hypothesis of why stretching is bad before, um, or static stretching, so you're holding that position, is from a kind of mechanical factor. So you get something called muscle tendon unit stiffness, and 
basically by stretching you take that stiffness out which means you don't get that ping and you don't get like that kind of force so that's basically why stretching before is bad and it's massively negative to um performance and i try to tell all my athletes that and it takes me a while to kind of get into it but it's to say to kind of believe it sorry because they've been told since such a young age but if you do the research you'll kind of you'll understand um yeah anyway Eating small, next myth, sorry, eating small frequent meals boosts your metabolism. Give me a wee break before this one. So, right, there's no studies that show eating small meals kind of speeds up your metabolism. The only thing that's going to affect it is obviously the protein intake because you have a higher thermic effect of feeding, so you burn more calories by eating protein over obviously consecutive meals throughout the day. So let's say, I don't know if this is the right number, it definitely won't be, but I'm just going to give an example. Let's say it took one calorie to digest one gram of protein, all right? So if you have 100 grams of protein, it's going to take 100 calories to digest that, all right? It doesn't matter if you have that in a one-er or five feedings of 20 grams, you're still going to burn 100 calories um, digesting that protein, for example. So your thermic effect of feeding, which is part of your metabolism, is not going to be any... Um, any higher so it's not going to speed it up um, yes yeah, so that's all I have to say about that is don't listen to that and it's obviously about your total calories across the day and the total amount of e- um, energy expenditure you do on top of that so obviously how much you spend on that credit card and how much you pay off it I'm not going to get into in any further about the metabolism stuff the only thing that will I say affect your metabolism is your um, metabolic adaptation so as you lose weight and um, you don't need as many calories to basically do daily movements so if you think if you climb ben nevis with a 20 kilo backpack on it's going to take a lot more energy than it would than climbing it without the backpack on and the same thing happens when you lose weight it takes you less energy to move that 10,000 steps a day it takes you less energy to get up that set of stairs which means you're going to burn less energy so you might obviously your metabolism is changing to obviously suit your kind of lighter body weight as such and we're going to leave it on that one because the last one, is, I, I'm not going to go into it. I'll leave it for another day. So there we have it. Jim myths debunked. But um, obviously that's only a few of them. If you have any more queries at all, fire them in. I'll soon obviously do another podcast on this because it's quite a, a good one to do it on. And you'll you'll be able to learn from this, but you'll also be able to teach other people from this as well, um, which is obviously superb and, and the key if you like. And um, yeah, if you kind of second guess anything that I'm saying, please message me. If not, do your own research and you'll obviously find out. Um, but definitely don't Google it. Google it. Obviously, I can, you can, anyone can go and put any, something on Google. Um, go to Google Scholar. It's, um, I think if an article gets published there, it has to be um, co-signed by like two further scientists to say it's reliable research. Um, obviously, which shows that, um, yeah, it's, it's obviously true. But the only thing there is it takes about an hour to read an article and um, because it's obviously so in-depth and stuff so it's not very fun but yeah feel free to message me if you, you question anything or you've heard different i'm happy to kind of clear it up for you